Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Good afternoon, evening, good morning, wherever you are and what time it is in the world. It's the Vet Gurus here, Brendan, here at, with Mark, and it is the week ending June the 22nd, Mark, 2018. And um, as usual, we have some exciting bits and pieces this week, Mark. We have some fantastic news stories. We have an email to reply to from a good friend of ours who we interviewed recently. And I think we have a fantastic topic, which reminds me, Mark, before we start, or as we start, um, for those of you who haven't been to our website, vetgurus.com, um, every, there's a couple of things there for subscribers even. Um, it's worthwhile going to our website because not only can you see what photograph we put up every week um, relating to the topic, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is... I put one of my little pics from my film camera up there, Mark, or that will be up there shortly, um, relating to our topic this week, which is euthanasia. So I'll put up one of my pictures from the cemetery that I went to the other day, my black and white picture there. So um, people might want to have a little look at that. But more importantly, to go to our website to search. So with each of our podcasts, we tag items um, and and you can then potentially do a search for instance on rabbits and it will pull up a list of all the podcasts that have rabbits um, mentioned in there as a main topic especially so for those of you who want to catch up with previous podcasts or are interested in particular topics go to our podcast website vetgurus.com and have a little play around with the search as well and while you're there Click the link to our patron Patreon website, Mark Patron Patreon.com VetGurus. And if you're feeling very benefactual or beneficial or whatever you want to call it, you can give us a little bit of money to help pay for our podcasts. And which reminds me, our supporters, and we have a major sponsor that or two major sponsors that will be coming on fairly, fairly soon within the next few weeks. But we're always looking for help um, to help pay for our bandwidth and for our website etc um so that would be good so that's our little plug for today and we always want emails we're looking for emails people to say hello what they liked what they didn't like about our little podcast mark and that's enough of me rambling we love that communication we love that communication brendan and i think um uh, I've, i've been doing a bit of research on podcasts and i think if people do enjoy what we do and um and maybe they don't feel quite moved enough to um support us through the patreon but even just that thumbs up or the like button or um whichever they uh those um uh, social media positives mean that we pop up on more search engines and uh, it really helps us to spread across the world um even more countries than we already are at brendan so that's right and we also have our um vet gurus on twitter if you want to see our little posts and we do sort of we do the odd posts there probably only once or twice a week uh, mentioning which episode is coming up and what's on that particular episode and occasional extra little posts there and our facebook site too which is just called the veterinary education 
Talk or Vet podcast website. So, yeah, but we have links to them on our main vetgurus.com website as well. So, yeah, we always like to hear from our listeners, um, even if it's negative thoughts about me rambling on at the start of our podcast, Mark, and not getting stuck into things. So briefly, what have you been up to this week? Anything of interest, veterinary well, you know, or I've, otherwise? I've been doing my meeting stuff down at the um, at the uh, at mascot with the um, New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board. That's been um, uh, taking up a bit of time. But we've had some very interesting cases. As the weather cools up here, Brendan, um, I do find that we get an increase in the number of bearded dragons who have um, particularly we've had three in a row with gastrointestinal obstructions Um, and so I think there is a little bit of a pattern with the changing weather the changing temperature gradient the uh, the approaching brumation um, that leads to problems with bearded dragons and some of these are really serious and require surgery to get them sorted so that's sort of occupied me for the first uh, part of the week Brenda what about you uh I'm just trying to think if I had any um particularly interesting cases there the usual rabbit dental works um that were coming in the actually a few dogs and cats a few more dogs and cats than normally and the interesting thing about that is and I'm always fascinated with how many of our, and overall we probably see 10% non-unusual pets in our practice, so 10% dogs and cats and 90% everything else, all our unusual pets, reptiles, small mammals and birds and native animals as well as, as um, pets and a little bit of wildlife. Um, I'm amazed at how many people who will come in with a rabbit or a reptile or a ferret or a rat or a mouse and those animals are long gone and yet they are still coming to see us with a dog or a cat that they have in the family and they would pass many other vet clinics to come and see us because they enjoyed our our treatment or they valued our treatment and our care of their unusual pet and then we end up seeing them with dog, dog a dog or a cat um, for the rest of the life of that particular animal and we don't see any more unusual pets that they have. But um, So I suppose that's a, a bit of a plug for people who are working in a practice where the boss or bosses don't want them to see unusual pets and yet that particular practitioner has an interest in unusual pet, uh, pets. That's one way of trying to convince your boss or bosses that it is a good idea because you'll pull in clients that you'll get for a lifetime if you do things right, even if they're not seeing those unusual pets anymore. And I'm, I'm sure you have similar stories, would you, Mark? Precisely the same, but I, I often argue vociferously that, um, that uh, unusual pets, while that's sort of like you know the area I love and and uh, a real um, focus of my attention with continuing education. Um, it builds the rest of the practice that um, people do come to us with their dogs and cats and other questions, and um, and there's not a doubt that uh, that um, they travel past other clinics because they're pleased with the uh, you know the. Nature of the practice that we have, so yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me at all that people drive from all over Melbourne to come and visit you there at Warren Dyke, mate. Well, maybe not quite that uh, much, but yeah, I must admit we do get some clients come in with a dog or a cat from a from a long way away, and they, as I said at 
previously. They pass a hell of a lot of vet clinics to get to us. Um, they may never come back, but they pass a hell of a lot of vet clinics to get to us. So let's jump into, well, we have a, a, a very interesting, fascinating email link from one of the people that we interviewed recently, Mark, and I think you wanted to chat about this. I did. I did want to. Um, I was very pleased to uh, read um, an email from Doug, and it does seem um, both our conversation while we're away at the conference, the ADA conference in Brisbane, and then I think we we got him to on his long drive back to um, to Moama Echuca, um, He did take the time to uh, you know the the changing the channel and getting the radio all that time is king size pain in the butt so he did just plug in his um his smartphone and uh download i think at that stage he had organized maybe 11 consecutive podcasts to listen to for the trip home can you think of a worse torture brendan um but whatever it is about doug he um he really did enjoy that uh that trip and so much so that um we've now um seconded him as um the uh, official um, research assistant for the uh, Vet Gurus podcast. And uh, in addition to the one or two over the, the uh, all the podcasts that we've done, the one or two articles I've flicked at you, Brendan, I'm sure now that, um, that Doug's going to uh, just keep his ears pricked and uh, flick us some, uh, particularly with respect to birds, some very interesting articles. And this email, in fact, is one of those, uh, includes one of those references. Um, Doug sent us a, a, a wonderful article about um, the way that birds can see the Earth's magnetic fields. So we've always known that, um, that the, you know, the way that uh, birds navigate their way around the globe, I've just been... Um, uh, looking at some of the the uh, birds that have left our shores over the last couple of months uh, and um, seen the pathway they take up through East Asia to um, you know the Aleutian Isles and whatnot to breed, um, and that uh, journey of twenty thousand kilometres um, is undertaken by birds as young as. Um, so they fly down from that area at uh, at only 14 to 16 weeks of age, Brendan. Yes. Um, and so to know that trip, to know where to go, um, uh, to be able to navigate that sort of stuff, it, you know, we've always been fascinated by it. Um, and there's always been this thought that maybe somewhere in the beak or somewhere in the brain there was um, uh, something that was sensitive to the Earth's magnetic fields um, and this was coined a particular sense called magnetoreception. Um, and obviously uh, uh, there's been a lot of research in this area. It became apparent that birds uh, could only identify magnetic fields of if certain wavelengths of light were available. Um, and in particular in birds, um, studies have shown that uh, this magnetoreception is exquisitely dependent on blue light. And um, anyway, there's uh, been a number of studies looking at the retina of birds for a variety of other purposes. Um, and uh, in addition to the retina in the brains and uh, um, 
muscles. They've identified a series of proteins, the cryptochromes, um, and uh, there's been a lot. These cryptochromes play a, a role in circadian rhythm, um, but it does appear that um, some of them, particularly the ones in the eyes, um, may well be uh, facilitating under the influence of blue light, the observation of um, magnetic fields and allowing these amazing birds to travel. And they probably actually see the fields, Brendan. Isn't that just like, that just blows my very small mind that um, that what they view with their eyes actually ends up being like a series of, of um, I don't know, uh, Colours, black and white pictures, which show the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. Wouldn't that be a superpower worth having? It would be fantastic to have that. Yes, it took me two or three reads of that particular article that Doug sent to sort of try and wrap my head around um, what how it works. It was pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing, and I'm sure they'll discover or find out in more detail how that whole process works with birds. But, yes, it um, it needs to be added to your superpowers, Mark. And we may talk, we, we, we need to talk about superpowers at, at some stage because I know we have spoken about super, maybe we have to have an actual episode on superpowers, veterinary superpowers and what they mean. And I'll um, explain about that off air a little bit later, Mark, um, before we um, commit to doing something like that. But, yes, thank you, Doug. And Doug is well on the way to becoming a – is currently an acolyte, isn't he? He's got a bit of a way to go to become a guru. But um, if he keeps sending these articles in, Doug, um, you may end up being an honorary vet guru. Um, and we may have to have some sort of award ceremony for him if he um, keeps sending us these fantastic articles. Well, I think we should jump over to our, I was going to say mail, our news items um, for this week, Mark, and I'll take the first one. And I found this one quite fascinating in that humans are pushing animals to be more nocturnal and the mere presence of humans is changing the natural world. And we all know that humans are exerting heavy pressure on nature um, habitat destruction, etc. But a really interesting study turns out that we're having a subtler effect as well, Mark, in that we're driving other mammals to conduct their activities at night in an effort to avoid humans. And this was a study where, scrolling down here, they, it was a quite a good study because they looked at uh, they tracked a variety of behaviour um, in a fair number of species um, over six continents and eventually I think it looks like it was 62 species um, they tracked in the study and the results, they were quite amazed that the results consistently showed an increase in animal activity at night when there was human uh, humans around. And these are animals that are normally active during the day that have been pushed to becoming nocturnal, Mark. Um, and 83% of the case studies they examined showed some increase in nocturnal activity in response to disturbance. Um, and their findings were consistent across all the species, continents and habitat types. Um, so um, the shifts to nocturnality were consistent regardless of the type of disturbance. So whether it was a hiking or hunting or roads or farming or habitat destruction or just of any presence of humans, whether it was threatening or not, resulted in the changes in the animal's behaviour. Um, 
The next thought um, the researchers said were they don't quite know or understand whether or not this has any long-term potential um, concerns with the species, um, but they are shifting to doing things like hunting prey um, at night instead of during the day or becoming more active to, to seek out um other food surface uh, sources if they're not um, um, carnivores um, at night rather than during the day. So um, I think it's a little bit of a worry there, Mark, um, that we're forcing these animals to become more nocturnal that shouldn't be. And um, it reminds me very much of um, my eldest child, Jane. I know I always end up <laughs> using these articles as a um, as a little um, story about one of my or, or some of my family members. And yeah, Jane's one of those nocturnal ones. She's a She's a bit of a night owl, um, whereas my other daughter tends to work best first thing in the morning and doesn't like to be up late at night. So maybe she is an animal more than the other one. I do not know, Mark. But well, I've got a, yeah, I was a little bit concerned about this. I've article. got an interesting twist on that. When, when in the summertime, when maybe I have a late night at work and I leave work, you know. Um, in the early evening, just as it's dark, we do have a big power pole outside our practice. And, um, and particularly over the last couple of years, there's been uh, a number of kookaburras who um, routinely sit on the light till actually quite late in the evening, picking off the insects that are, um, that are attracted to the light. So that's a little bit of a, well, I don't know that it's technically nocturnal activity, but it's, um, it's certainly altered behaviour because of the presence of humans and the light we produce that, um, that uh, yeah, it sort of fits into the same category as as, uh, as um, this type of thing your article was and, talking about. Well, they're taking, yeah, well, they're, t- they're taking that low-hanging fruit or insects, aren't they, that um, they can just sit there and pick it off. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say something else there, Mark. I thought you were going to talk about how you're an animal when um, when night comes um, and you're out, out at night, but... Um, um, maybe you've toned yourself down over the years. Um, okay, so let's go to, to story number two, and that is about toxic mushrooms. And this one's a little bit closer to home for you. It, well, it's it's certainly the article that we're going to link to talks about um, uh, um, some actual case cases. Um, the one in particular is uh, that this one talks about is a, a five-year-old dog from Rainella in South Adelaide, and um, and uh, their dog, a beautiful uh, little seven-month-old miniature schnauzer, Walter, um, he uh, um, had a gastrointestinal upset. He was um, upset. Uh, he was vis- you know, he'd been taken to the local vet with his gastrointestinal upset, and they decided that um, he was okay and worth monitoring at home, but. And in the period overnight, he died a painful death on the way to the emergency service. And um, and it was uh, um, found in the yard um, that there was um, some of the death cap mushrooms. Um, and we've, we've certainly, there are each year there's actually um, some people who, uh, some people have died over the years from harvesting these mushrooms in, in mistake, in the mistaken belief that they're one of the edible ones, but um, we've definitely had cases at our hospital where, um, uh, where animals, because of the dogs, particularly young dogs, because of the texture of the mushrooms, um, they will definitely uh, 
have the potential to ingest them. And um, and there's a variety of um, of species. There's definitely the the lethally dangerous death cap, the um, the uh, mushrooms from the family Amanita, um, and um, they occur all around Australia. And uh, and um, certainly they're they're, uh, they're they're very very likely to um, to cause the death of an animal if they eat them. Um, but there's also a number of other um, mushroom species um, which, uh, which are likely to uh, at least cause gastrointestinal upset but may cause a variety of other complications, and particularly where we've had a long period of dry weather followed by a big downpour. So there's a you know significant thatch, a lot of in the lawn or a lot of uh, dry, dead plant material, which then is suddenly... Uh, um, wet by the rain, um, uh, these uh, fruiting bodies of various funguses that are toxic are likely to be around and particularly puppies um, are likely to uh, experiment with the things that they eat and could conceivably get into trouble. So I think it's a particularly where we are at the moment, we've been through that sort of weather pattern and I'm, I'm just keen to make sure people are aware that it's a potential problem. Yes, I'm trying to. Not that, yeah, not that I can recall. Um, I'm sure I have in the past, but certainly not in the last last few years, as far as um, these sort of toxicities. No. Um, So whether that's uh, related to the you know region we're in, although we the the BFA number of potentially toxic um, mushrooms and that around where we are. um, with the with the bushland and that we have, but no, I haven't, Mark. The answer is no. I think it's one of those things that can be a little bit difficult. You know, you've got to be in the fortunate situation, I suppose, where someone sees their their puppy having a go at one of these. Because if you if you don't have that little piece of history, um, it can make it very very difficult to identify um, uh, this as a cause of death. So so yeah, it's um. It's certainly something that uh, if people see mushrooms popping up in their yard, they just uh, it's a, a very sensible thing to just keep a very close eye on puppies, I reckon, particularly those, you know, you just can imagine a 16-week-old Labrador gambling around the yard and finding some of these and, and uh, making short work of them. And so just I think it's a good thing for people to keep an eye on. Yes, most definitely. Well, the next news story, I'm trying to be more upbeat as I've um, rather than being um, cynical with things. And I've got a good news story, Mark. It is an actual good news story. And this is about a lost three-year-old girl who was found safe after she wandered into the bushland surrounding her grandmother's property in, in outback Queensland in here in Australia. And the interesting animal-related bit is it they credit a deaf and partially blind Australian cattle dog for keeping her safe. Um, she was left. Um, she left home and she was found, she was missing for I think fifteen hours, Mark, and she was barefoot and in a t-shirt when she wandered off. And the dog stayed with her by her side all day and all night um, until they eventually found her um, around about um, 8am 
the next morning and as the rescue people were heading up, um, they heard cries of the, the girl um, the next morning um, as they were doing their search. Um, the dog um, came running to one of the rescuers and then led the rescue person straight to this little girl. So it's a bit of a short story, but it's a nice, warm, fuzzy one, Mark. There you go. What do you think of that for a good story? I reckon that's, that's, um, that certainly passes the Mel test. And um, and I think, uh, like, there's a lot of those stories. Um, the, the dogs, particularly on properties, they are smart animals. And even at 17 years, it doesn't surprise me that... Um, that uh, um, Max, of course, he had to be called Max. Max is a very good, yes. and um, it doesn't surprise me. And Max, the right thing. Yes, and Max has been made an honorary police dog by the Queensland Police due to his loyalty and his steadfastness. So there we go. Deaf, partially blind dog keeps child safe in Australian wilderness was the was the headline at the Mother Nature Network. Um, article mark so the last one is um actually i found this one fascinating as, as well and this one um, you're going to have a little chat about um benefits of predators mark for helping farmers well i think it's a really topical article brendan because um it is a little bit of a um a uh a, um, thing in australia at the moment that there's a lot of circumstances where um talking about the apex predators in particular ecosystems um there's you know for generations they've been taken out as problematic as uh, dangerous to humans and uh particularly dangerous to the animals that humans you know the, the animals that we might farm um but interestingly enough this uh recent paper in uh, nature ecology and evolution um, summarizes a whole bunch of studies around the globe which looks at the benefits of predators um, and and scavengers and uh, and the actual benefits they play indirectly for mankind for humankind and moreover the the direct effects they have um, on various forms of um, agriculture and um, and the the key areas that they you know, the key findings they made were that um, bats in particular, because of their um, uh, the vast quantity of insects that they take out of, uh, out of the wild, that, um, that they're probably an effective, uh, you know, they probably are something like a $1 billion uh, um, cost-saving in pest control for the um, uh, US corn farmers alone. Um, and similarly, um, that... Uh, birds and bats in coffee plantations in uh, the Indonesian island of Sulawesi, um, where those predators were absent, um, coffee profits were reduced by um, $730 per hectare. So these are not just um, philosophical benefits, um, they're hard and fast economic benefits. And, of course, our Australian example is the, uh, the fact that um, Areas where dingoes persist um, and cattle are farmed, there's been a measurable increase in uh, beef cattle productivity because the, the uh, intensity of competition by kangaroo populations is significantly decreased. Um, and and if that's even when uh, the, the fact that the dingoes may eat some cattle calves, when that's factored in, the uh, cattle pro- productivity is still massively increased. 
And I know that, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, trying to establish uh, suitable environments uh, for um, some of our smaller animals, um, in some of the reserves in South Australia, there's talk about introducing dingoes to decrease the total number of foxes and cats that prey on those uh those um you know the small birds and reptiles and mammals uh of our arid interior so i think um it, the take home message of this article is that um that we just probably should be a little bit more uh careful before we dismiss the value of um predators um they you know they uh they provide a a, a huge um, service to ecosystems and in turn a huge service to humanity. So I think I'd, I'd, I'd be classifying that as a positive story, Brendan. Yes, it was It was quite interesting and I think it is a positive story without a doubt. And they, it was a good little summary there that, that they had lots of, lots of information in that. I'm just trying to see where, was that another Mother Nature Network um, article or not? It was. I know it was um, discussing that paper from Nature Ecology and Evolution, but um, yeah, it was. Um, it was quite fascinating. Um, yes, so there we go. We've got um, what two, three? No, I think all. Well, actually, no. The toxic mushrooms may not be. So we've got fifty percent positive and fifty percent maybe not quite so positive. Um, yes. So there we go. So that's all the news stories for this week. And I think we should jump into our, well, I think it's a positive um, um, main topic, Mark, because the way we deal with this particular subject can make it a positive experience, even though we're talking about death. So our main topic this week is the euthanasia of unusual pets and the process that those of us who, or majority of us who, who deal with unusual pets, that the methods we like to to choose to providing a gentle um, death for these animals when they're coming to that end of life um, decision time mark. So, I think um, I'm going to um, cross over to you um, to talk about the um, what we what 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 you and I and uh, I know a lot of the other unusual um, and the exotic pet vets talk about is the two-stage technique for euthanasia of unusual pets. So do you want to walk us through the two-stage process, Mark? What is it and um, is it hard to do? How do we go about that process? Well, it's not hard to do, Brendan. And, um, and I think increasingly, um, and particularly as I talk to the more recent graduates who uh, work with me at our hospital, um, I think this is a, a thought process that's extending to um, our other companion animals as well, that um, rather than, than pure and simply uh, establishing um, an attempt to get intravenous access and then deliver the overdose of barbiturate anaesthetic, um, uh, particularly with our unusual exotic and avian pets, we're much keener to um, either deeply sedate or anaesthetise the animal um, so that it is uh, not sensitive to our ministrations with the uh, access, trying to access a vein. Um, and even in some of them, we're not able to access the, the, uh, um, the circulatory system and we have to use... Um, alternate methods of accessing um, 
the body to get the euthanasia solution in. And I think that uh, that first phase, sedating and or anaesthetising, then leading on to the final uh, delivery of the euthanasiate, um, those two stages are now becoming the the uh, the standard operating procedure for um, for our definitely our exotic. Uh, euthanasias, but we're also using it more and more frequently with um, with our companion animals as well, Brendan. Yes, and I think the key there is people sometimes, or veterinarians sometimes panic about dealing with the euthanasia of an unusual or exotic pet or a non-familiar pet species um, and, and worry about the whole process. But the actual process is quite simple and it is exactly like you mentioned there, Mark, um, talking about or thinking about sedating or anaesthetising the animal first before we give it that final euthanasia solution. And and to expand on that a little bit, the reason why we like to do that is not to, is to make it an easy and gentle death for that particular animal because often these are end-stage animals and, and we may struggle to find, and we'll talk about sites of injections um, for these solutions or or, medic- or, or anaesthetics or, or euthanasia solutions in, the, in a moment, but we may struggle to find a, a, a vein or, or venous act, a, access or arterial access um, to give the euthanasia solution. And these euthanasia solutions, usually pentobarbitone or, or variations, have an extremely alkaline pH. So if they are not given directly into the circulation, they hurt like hell and they will have a very painful death. So my opinion is, and, and, and unfortunately we still hear about veterinarians and even laboratory people sometimes euthanizing animals just by giving them an injection into intra-animal with the euthanasia solutions, Mark. And um, I think that's a horrible way to, to euthanize or c- to kill an animal because it would die a horrible death. Yes, if you did manage to to happen across the heart or, or, or the spleen or the liver or the kidney, um, it may drop off the end of the needle. But if you don't, it's it's almost certainly going to um, writhe around in pain as it's dying. So we can avoid that completely just by sedating or anaesthetizing the animal first um, before we give it the euthanasia solution. And again, it's something that young graduates may or new graduates may struggle with because their boss um, doesn't want them to to um, mess around and, and, and take time with doing this, but I think it's stepping back and doing the right thing for the animal. Um, and it is not a cost factor as far as I'm concerned because, as we'll talk about in a second, um, it doesn't cost anything much at all to to give it the sedative or the anaesthetic drug. Um, all we're losing is a tiny bit of time and it may be five minutes, it may be ten minutes, it may be half an hour if we're dealing with a reptile that we sedate first because things take a little bit longer um, um, until we have that reptile or, or the other animal, um, mammal or the bird sedated before we euthanise it. But moment. Brendan, so, I think um, I was just going to say that in our practice we actually find that um, that uh, despite that process maybe taking a touch longer in terms of adding the sedative or anesthesia step to the process, um, it actually ends up uh, being less time-consuming because um, we can often leave a client to sit peacefully in the um, 
you know, we have a separate room. Um, uh, it goes under various names, but I suppose we like to call it the quiet room. And um, and people can sit there with their reptile for half an hour. We can do another consult. We can make a couple of phone calls and let them sit peacefully and then go back to it to them after we're at the appropriate stage and and certainly it takes much less time once you're uh, once you have the animal in that condition you're not poking around it's not painful that people are not getting upset um, that process I reckon actually um, is a, a can often be an improvement in time management so um, so I think it's a, a yes a, I take no stock in the argument that it's a um, waste of time. I think um, in most instances it works out to be better. I think also, just before we get on to yes. the sedative selection, I think it's really important whether it is our uh, companion animals or whether it's um, our uh, unusual and exotic pets. I think one of the things that I always say to um, recent graduates is try to. Uh, Manage the expectations of the, you know, if people want to stay and uh, be present as this happens, um, then this is a, a um, not a bad thing that people are there, but I think it makes a big difference if you lead their expectation. If they don't know what's going on, if they don't know um, that, you, you know, there's going to be some sedation, that the level of mentation of their patient is going to drop off if they uh, um, don't realise that, it's going to be difficult to get a vein in some of these animals, then then that can be distressing for them and feeling comfortable to tell them exactly what you're doing and what the likelihood of it being successful or not. I think that makes a huge difference to the experience for the people. They understand um, uh, things can go wrong and if you're leading them and telling them what you're doing, they're much better with you than, than if they don't know what's going on. Their mind tends to play tricks on them and they think, they paint the worst possible picture when they don't know. So communication is everything, Brendan. Ab- absolutely, yes. And, yeah, I was jumping ahead of myself there a little bit, and I think it, it applies to all of these animals. We, I like to um, do all of that um, pre- preparation. So so even going to the... Um, Going to the aspect of, of of going through the process of asking them if they want to fix up the account before the euthanasia, if it's a pre-planned euthanasia, um, several days in advance, um, um, selection of things like cremation or other or burial or tome or, or leaving the body with us for for, for mass burial or cremation, um, and and walking the client through all the processes of, of of the paperwork, I suppose is the best way of saying that, as well as the, the process that's going to happen during the actual euthanasia um, of the two stage process, and then they're all geared geared up with, with with okay, all the all the paperwork's out of the way. They sign the euthanasia consent form, and then we can gently walk them through the process of the actual euthanasia itself. And I think that. And we find that um, things work a hell of a lot more smoothly rather than going through that. And the worst thing that you can end up doing is everybody's in tears um, because they've lost a, a loved pet and then um, you're trying to put a consent form in front of them or, 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 or a receptionist is saying, can you please fix up the bill? Um, I, I'd certainly, um, these days, I'd, um, we... We'd never push that at all um, at the end of the euthanasia. If it isn't sorted out beforehand, we'd just say to them, look, we'll send you out the bill down the track. We'd, we'd, we'd gently say, look, do you want to fix up the um, account 
at, at, at the moment. Um, and if they say no, then we say, okay, don't worry about it. You just head off home. Um, so, so preparing the client for all of those things is certainly a, an excellent way to go to, to make things a lot easier for, for everybody. And I, I think I've mentioned before, we, we definitely get several referral euthanasias um, every year where we have a client that um, brings an animal to us, usually then unusual pets, occasionally a dog and cat as well, Mark, where we have never seen this client before. They come to our clinic because they they hear we're good at killing animals, Mark. They, they hear we're good at euthanizing animals and we provide a caring, kind euthanasia technique. So they may bring their snake, their dog, their cat, their their bird, whatever to us, um, rather than their 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 local veterinarian and I think um, it, it sort of tells us that we need to um, improve things a lot um, generally in the veterinary community if we're having clients that um, don't feel comfortable going to the same veterinarian for the euthanasia um, if they don't think they can do a, a good job of it Mark um, and the final thing I'd like to say before we go on to to these to uh, the selection of the um um, sedatives and the euthanasia technique is when you think about it there's probably only a couple of things clients remember um, if you have a long-term client where you see an animal from from when it was um, just hatched or born um, to, to it was euthanized they remember um, the time you saved it um, from the mushroom poisoning mark or uh, toxicity or from um, removing the, the spleen of that dog or doing the brain surgery on that um, that snake um, and they remember the euthanasia and if that euthanasia goes drastically wrong then doesn't matter how many times you save that animal in the past all that may stick in the mind of that client is that bad euthanasia and you may never see them again. So, you know, don't don't underestimate the importance no, no of pressure there. trying to make <laughs> euthanasia. No, no yeah, no pressure, no pressure. But um trying and and it shouldn't be a pressure pressure filled situation as we're going to walk our listeners through it. Um, now go, so go um, on to that. I was just gonna quickly <laughs> say that um that my experience has been, and, and you, what you say bears it out, that people are far less worried about um, what this experience costs. They are much, much more worried about getting it done right, and they will travel um, if they feel that um, it's going to be done in a way that they feel is appropriate. Um, uh, um, they'll, they'll, the issue of how much it costs and how far they have to travel become know much lower order concerns so don't um I, I counsel everyone not to um sell themselves short and feel that they've got to uh um subsidize these these skills um in any way they're they're um well respected and well revered and um and valued by our society and we should be perfectly happy charging for them i reckon absolutely so selection of these anaesthetic um, or sedative um, drugs, Mark, what um, what are your general thoughts? They tend to be the same sort of ones that we use as pre-meds for each of the species we're dealing with, Brendan, um, and we'll often use them at um, significantly higher doses, um, but, um, but uh, you know, we, we would regularly use um, uh, some of the opiates, uh, um, for our reptiles, we'll often use um, the mu agonists for um, our birds. We may well use a combination of 
um, a benzodiazepine and an opiate. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the drugs that we use to sedate them as uh, pre-medicate them for an anaesthetic procedure, for a surgical procedure, are precisely the same ones that we'd use uh, to uh, prepare them for uh, delivery of the euthanasia solution. Yes, and one if people are worried about costs, which they shouldn't be at all, um, it's... I literally have a, a little box of expired anaesthetics and sedatives that I use as these um, drugs to do the um, sedation for the euthanasias, Mark. So I might just draw up a cocktail of, of what's in the box on the day and that would be the um, sedative that I would be giving to that, that um, especially the mammals. Um, with, the, with the reptiles, I would be choosing um, probably similar to what you're choosing. Um, it may be methadone. I often use a bit of ketamine um, in conjunction with um, potentially another um, agent um, with the reptiles because ketamine works so well in um, bombing them out and sedating them. Um, yes, it will sting giving that little injection, but it won't be stinging as much as that um, euthanasia solution. Um, and as I mentioned at the start with the reptiles, you tend to, things happen slowly in reptiles. Um, so pop it back in an enclosure at its preferred body temperature, keep it warm and um head back to it in, in 15 or 20 minutes, half an hour, and um, then take it out again and, and maybe try for the um, venous access with them. So in the, in the snakes, I'd be trying the ventral tail vein um, with them. In the lizards, the same as well. Um, if it was a very small animal or it was one that uh, was struggling to get the, the tail vein with them, I would be going intracardiac, and this animal will then be sedated or, or anaesthetized um, with that um, cocktail that I've used in, in the animal and um, it won't be feeling it there with them. Um, um, don't forget we can, with, with with a fair number of species, Mark, and I'm interested to see which ones you recommend doing this for, we can just gas them down. Um, and I think a, a fair percentage of our birds, for instance, you can just gas down and then give them the euthanasia solution and same with our small mammals. And I I, my routine for for um, ferrets and um, guinea pigs um, and rats and mice is to just gas them down with isoflurane and then I'll be giving the euthanasia solution once they're anaesthetised um, and they gas down quite quickly. Do you do something similar? Definitely use the same the same uh, technique, Brendan, and uh, we're, of course, we are, of course, exquisitely conscious of our uh, occupational health and safety requirements to limit exposure to um, to isoflurane. So we ensure that we have a relatively tight-fitting mask and uh, and make sure that we've got um, uh, waste gas um, uh, draining away from the area. Um, but, um, but, yeah, we definitely take advantage of the relatively... Um, quick effects of isoflurane, um, uh, particularly for our birds, um, and, uh, and once we have them deeply anaesthetised, um, which may only take um, forty seconds to a minute, then we can access those veins and uh, and um, deliver the overdose of barbiturate anaesthetic. Yes, and my, my typical sort of approach for one of the other small mammals, for instance, rabbits, is because they, they do stress out if you are trying to just gas them down. So my, my euthanasia technique for rabbits, if I, if I cannot access a vein readily, would be 
giving that rabbit a subcutaneous um, injection and probably it would be, it may be metatomidine, it may be zolotil, it may be alfaxan subcutaneous, um, it may be some methadone um, or, or a cocktail of those expired sedatives or anaesthetics that I just mentioned before. And I would have walked the client through this um, previously and the client will probably be then holding that rabbit, um, sitting there either in the waiting room if there's nobody um, left if I leave it to the last consultation of the night um, or in, in the um, consultation room and they will hold their little rabbit until it um, slowly sort of goes floppy in their arms which usually only takes five minutes maximum and then I would have explained to the client that I will be then taking their rabbit into the surgery popping it on the anaesthetic machine um, and gassing it down to a surgical plane of anaesthesia and then it will be getting the euthanasia solution, usually intracardiac um, with them from there. And if the client desperately wanted to be there at the end point when I am euthanizing that animal, then at the very last moment I will be calling them into the um, room where the anaesthetic machine is and... Um, bearing in mind the occupational health and safety issues that you mentioned, um, then um, they will be watching and they will see that that animal won't even twitch um, as I'm injecting it intracardiac and and they will have, you know, resolution that they will be seeing their animal, that it's not wriggling, it's not crying out in pain um, as it's been euthanized. Uh, so, yeah, that's sort of my technique with with, with rabbits and, and very similar technique, as you mentioned, with the other species there. Um, I think the other one we need to sort of briefly talk about, Mark, is the whole process of, of dealing with the body um, afterwards. What's your sort of um, protocols for that with clients? Well, it's, it's, um, certain... What do you ask or tell them or, or mention? Yeah. certainly been, um, uh, you know, there once was a time when um, uh, people would, by and large, leave the, the, the disposition of the remains to... Um, to the hospital, but it's certainly become the case now that uh, we do need to have a talk to them about um, about you know uh, the possibility of cremation. Um, the the we actually have a number of the the uh, animals that um, have have uh, you know been long term clients uh, buried in the gardens around the hospital, um, and so I think. Um, uh, as you said, Brendan, having that discussion with people before the moment and uh, um, uh, having all that planned and prepared um, definitely facilitates things after the event that people can just deal with their emotions and um, and then leave um, uh, um, peacefully and respectfully without having to uh, to contemplate logistics such as um, whether they're going to go for burial or um, cremation um, and uh, and so I think having that planned but just explaining to them that there is um, limited options that um, that uh, home burial does entail um, uh, there are certain um, in particularly in some of the larger metropolitan areas there's fairly significant um, council concerns about how many animals can be buried in the backyard and um and so they need to be aware of those concerns and um and yeah the other potential options um uh, we've had um uh we've had two people come to us with our their uh unusual pets and talk to us about um uh um, having them taxidermied um we actively discourage that process now we have had 
um, a dog many years ago, a quite was desperately keen to have their dog taxidermied and got the procedure done. But the problem with taxidermy in these circumstances is that it generally doesn't capture the the personality of the dog. It's a um, you know a, a process for preserving a specimen of that species, and certainly doesn't um, routinely capture the the uh, the nature or personality of the animal. And um, so we discourage people from going through that particular process. Um, but certainly a lot of our clients are, are happy to pay for a formal pet cremation and they quite, quite, uh, it gives them quite, uh, uh, a, uh, you know, helps with the grieving to um, get those uh, ashes back and, and uh, inter them or have them um, somewhere that, uh, that they can celebrate the life of that pet. And I, and I think we shouldn't discount how important some of these pets are, even if, um, or not even if, um, um, some people may think, oh, it's just, it's only a mouse or it's only a rat or it's only a ferret. But, you'd, um, well, I'm not surprised anymore about how, how much um, how much they seem to um, care for that um, deceased little mouse and, and, and the the. the the expense they will go to have an individual cremation on something like that type of species um, or a fish um, and and want the ashes back um, and even then spend lots of time trying to select the little the little trinkets that go with it um, to get that particular animal um, back so you know I think it gets back to the old not prejudging your clients about um, how much their animals um, mean to them and 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 um, what they want so you need to provide them with all of those options as far as that type of thing and the, i don't know what we've just recently changed our um the company that does the cremations for us um here in in melbourne and um, um the company that we've changed to do provide some very good little um, um urns and and um um um, um, lockets and those sorts of options for for clients for these smaller animals. So we find in that they're quite good to deal with those. So so I th- I think the key is you know trying to if you have time, um, um, which you should make time for, but um, if if it's not a an emergency <laughs> euthanasia, um, to to walk the client through all that that whole process from um, from the account um, and how much things are going to cost to what decision they want to make and I often say to them look have a chat to the family at home over the weekend um, we know we're going to have to put down Fido um, potentially next week and and make decisions on whether you want to take Fido at home and and bury Fido at home and the issues of with digging a big hole for Fido the Great Dane um, or having Fido cremated and ashes back or or a standard burial and what sort of um, process you want to do. Does all the family want to be there? Um, And then I'd walk them through the two-stage euthanasia process to explain to them what's going to happen on the day or the night that it occurs. And it just seems to make everything a hell of a lot smoother for everybody, especially the animal, Mark. And, um, yeah, the two-stage euthanasia technique is is the way to go, Mark. It is the way to go as far as I'm concerned. And maybe when my time comes, Mark, um, you'll remember the two-stage euthanasia technique for me, Mark, and you'll be very kind when um, it is my time to head off. It could well be the case that by the time you're ready to go, those uh, 
um, hopefully those laws have uh, changed and um, and we might not be um, uh, joking when we talk about uh, those processes for uh, humans. Yes. Yeah. It's un- yes. It un- um, well, and I was I just going to say it's uncanny how many discussions that begins when we do go through this process and we do take the time to talk to people, lead them through the details. Um, we talk to them about uh, um, these things in advance. It very often results in a, a very candid discussion about um, about how they wish these things could have been done to. A, uh, um, a relative of theirs who went through a particularly painful and drawn out um, uh, end of life period um, that uh, that they they see as a particular regret in their life. So so it does. It's no doubt. There's no doubt. You what you said it before, Brendan. Um, these events we do them regularly, and they're not insignificant events to us, but they are some of the most momentous events are not just in the relationship with the pet but in those people's lives altogether and so um so i do think it uh, behooves us to um to make it as good as possible uh, and and the two-stage process certainly is a big tool in my armament to make sure that's the case me too mark me too well, I think before we finish, um, for those who are not interested, they can um, fast forward now. But I think we need to do the product review that you have been waiting to review, Mark. So we'll do, spend the next um, five minutes or so um, on the movie review that you wished to review. So I think you're, and, and we need a, an honest score, Mark, for this film. And um, you saw it first, and I saw it. Um, this week, um, a couple of days ago, with my with my wife Annette, um, and it is the movie Solo, a Star Wars story. Mark, so what did you think? Well, um, to to be honest with you, Brendan, um, I'm, I have been, you know, particularly we talked off air about um, our uh, interest in science fiction and how we particularly have an interest in science fiction movies, but um, and the you know I regularly. Um, I'm amazed to think about the uh, the nature of those first three Star Wars movies, um, and I think uh, you know I'm happy to have them celebrated. But um, the uh, the 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 movies, the whole franchise that has been spawned from um, those that first movie in 1975, and the the uh, and particularly this last iteration. I don't know. I I want to um, I want to you know, celebrate and and um, and say how fantastic I think they are. But to be honest, Brendan, I I find them a little bit um, you know, and I've got to point out that um, uh, my um, latest man crush, uh, Donald Glover, plays um uh, Lando Calrissian in this movie, and so I was already predisposed to give it a very positive score, but um. I don't know. The story just seems a little bit predictable, and uh, and um, and I don't know. Some of the the, the dependence on the special effects um, rather than the craft of storytelling. Um, that the I don't know. It just to be honest, Brendan, it left me feeling a little bit flat when I came out. I I, I can't say that I was um, I was raving as I walked out of the theatre. Well, 
yeah, I I struggled with it, Mark. I I thought it was a not a good film. Yes, probably similar to what um, you were saying there. Um, I think it, a lot of the acting was fairly wooden. Um, I think the script was very poor, and and as you may or may not know, there was great hassles with the um, script and the making of this film, and they. They sacked the writers or the original directors or both, I think, at, at some stage because it was getting such poor um, previews when they were um, doing the previews with it. And I think at the end they had Ron Howard come in to, to try and polish it a little bit at the end because it was so bad. Um, yes, I, I, I wanted to like it and I didn't. Um my my well here's my bottom line mark my score and i'm giving it a six out of ten and that's been generous um i'm giving it an extra one which takes it to six otherwise it would have been five out of ten i'm giving it an extra one because chewbacca was in it um and i know everybody likes chewbacca um Otherwise, yeah, it was very disappointing. I think what is happening with all the Star Wars films, and it happened, I think, with the last one, is that they are aimed, because it's owned by Disney now, um, they are aimed at probably 10 to 15-year-old kids, um, and um, they've been dumbed down a lot, and it's certainly not a, a highbrow movie. And, um, yeah, I was I was very disappointed and... Um, I think Annie was very disappointed that I've taken her out to another another dud movie. So I think it's going to be a long time before I get her out on a date again, Mark. Um, I've I've blown it. Um, so I'll have to be dragging her out screaming or to something decent next time, Mark. Um, so yes, I was very disappointed. What was your score out I, of ten? I, I gave it a, a pretty much you know my usual generous nature when it comes to s- scoring. Um, our reviews, but um, I was much like you. I thought um, just scraping about a 6.1 or a 6.2 is all I could muster for this movie. So I'm sorry. I know all those Star Wars groupies out there will be, you know, we'll generate a whole lot of. Yes, and I know it. I I know we might lose a few um, subscribers. It has had good reviews supposedly online and by some of the the critics, but, um, yeah, I didn't think it was a. A very good film at all. It's a good one to wait. My advice would be if you haven't seen it and you like um, science fiction movies or the Star Wars universe, wait till it comes out on DVD or for streaming and then um, watch it then. Um, Don't waste your money going to the cinema to see it would be my advice, Mark. Um, So there we go. That's our movie review for this week um and probably we've only got two more listeners um listening anymore mark because i think most of them will have already switched off so i'm going to let mr outro um do his little bit and um we will talk to you all next week thank you for listening vetgurus.com thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.